Hey, welcome back to Relish the Journey, everyone. As always, I'm your host, Miles Biggs, and today I'm joined by Dr. Jane Tornator. She's a therapist, speaker, and author. She's been in a private practice for 15 years, and she's dedicated her career and life to helping people love themselves and obtain new levels of self-compassion. So, this is a fun one, guys. I really had a lot of fun talking with Jane, and she was right up my alley with stuff I've experienced in my life with meditation and just levels of awareness and questioning things, and really had a great back and forth. So if you've been digging all that stuff and some of the other guests I had recently, you're definitely going to like this one. So enjoy. So we are here to talk about stress. Right, it's not a it's not a four letter word, but it probably should be. Um, so, how did you embark on your own journey about you know on stress that made you uh, an authority on the topic? <laughs> you mean besides my entire life? <laughs> there you go, right? <laughs> Self taught. That's right. Well, as a little kid, my life it felt super stressful and unsafe, and to the point where I actually remember, and I had multiple night- nightmares of. Uh, me being alone with a monster coming after me. I had no idea where my family was, but it was like me against this unknown monster. And I always had dreams like that. And looking back on it, I'm like, a little five-year-old probably shouldn't be having those dreams. My gosh, Jane, but, you're like, that was me. Like, this is, really? this is wild. Yeah. And Holy cow. I would have the wildest, like, I would turn my back to my closet or my door because like that's where they were, right? Things like right. that. And mm-hmm. I remember them being very, very vivid dreams. And my parents' way to help me deal with it was they would have me draw them and then we would put them in the wood-burning fireplace, the, the drawings, so then they would, you know, they would just disappear, right? That would ruin it. And that would work for a night or so, but... Right, yeah, right. It is, it is wild, and so I never really, I never thought about that till you just said that, and I was thinking to myself, mm-hmm. "Holy crap, I've, I've had that same exact experience." Right, and it just kind of signals a sense of feeling unsafe in the world. Um, and I remember the point where I had my first dream in my adulthood where I wasn't alone, and I was like, "What? There? Wait." I woke up and there, there were other people in my dream. I wasn't alone. It was a huge, like, oh my God, I've done a lot of work to get to this point where I no longer have this, I'm alone in the world and I'm going to have to figure out how to take care of myself because nobody else is going to do it for me. So that's when I knew like, oh, this self-work really, really works. It makes a difference. Right. So were you a stressed out little kid then? Is that like that caused those dreams? Yeah. 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 I think I came out stressed out. Um, I had ADHD for undiagnosed ADHD until I was writing my dissertation literally. And I'm like, wow. So I learned major coping skills um, on how to deal with stress unmedicated um, because that was just, and that's all I knew. It wasn't till much later in life when I experienced like less stress that I'm like, oh, uh, you mean it doesn't have to always be like super intense and super alert and kind of like high energy and high alert and you know, there's tension all the time. It wasn't until my later adulthood that I, I experienced moments of just relaxation without implicitly unconsciously scanning the environment for potential danger. And I think many people who live with 
constant stress. And our society with our little constant notifications kind of is built is built to keep us on that that high alert of like what what's what what's my responsibility? What do I have to do? What are people expecting? What are, what are people going to say? What 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 what? And so we're always like, and our brain is naturally built that way, and our society and all the devices and everything and the six gazillion methods of communication just kind of add to that increased heightened scrutiny for am I okay in this world? Right. It's the it's the fight or flight. Right. It's like it used to protect us from saber toothed tigers. And now we see tigers everywhere and you're in that constant Absolutely. state of stress. Yeah. And, and our brains are built that way because, you know, the people who lived in the saber toothed tiger times, it was the ones who were constantly searching for dangers. Like, wait, did you hear that noise? Do you say my what? Is that a tiger? Those are the ones that lived. Right. So we, yeah. <laughs> we, you know, we got the survivor anxious brains and even though our, our environment isn't the same, our body and our brains change so much more slowly than our environment. Like tens of thousands of years is not enough time for us to change our systems. So we, you know, we're here because the warriors kept us alive, basically. And we got those, you know, we had natural selection for those brains. Yeah. And you, so we've been talking about stress and you just said the word anxious. What's the difference in your mind and your, you know, experiences, I guess, between stress and anxiety? Are they the same? That's a great question, Miles. Um, I think I would say that I, I'm going to put on my academic geek hat here. Um, when I was uh, studying in school, we learned about distress and eustress. Distress is, you know, like we're unhappy about it. Eustress is change that's good change, like a promotion or a new job or a kid or a marriage or a move to a place you want to go to. And while any change to our human psyches is is stressful, some of them are, are good stress. So I think we can tend to, the people who have got a, like a, a more balanced um, nervous system can respond to stress without getting anxious. It's just like, oh, wow, a lot's going on. Okay, let's figure out what to do versus the people who's who've experienced like either trauma or just ongoing chronic stress, their systems set to more fight or flight or freeze. So your system naturally responds to an, a, an event like um, I, I have a client who would come into my office and her phone would go off and she would just jump and get really irritated. And after we worked together for a while, um, her phone would go off and she'd go, oh, oops, I'll turn it off. So I think anxiety is is a, a learned response and stress just happens because we're we're alive in this world. That's a great question, Miles. I, I love that. Thanks. Yeah, I really like it's a good it's a good perspective on an answer too. Yeah. Um, I ask because similar to your, you said you had undiagnosed ADHD. Um, yeah. I don't know if I've always had anxiety, but it's at some point it was a, a similar sort of, I guess you could call it realization for me, where I was describing the way I was feeling. It was at a regular like wellness visit. And mm -hmm. I don't know what made me feel like sharing that day because most of the time I feel like the doctor says, how you doing? You say, yeah, I'm fine, doc. Thanks. Let's get right, it. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But that day I just started going through some stuff and he was asking me a few questions. He's like, man, well, you just described it as a panic attack. And I was Aww. like, huh, really? You know, it's like, that's like, <laughs> oh, that's unusual. It's like, that's right. like Monday, Wednesday, Friday for me, you know? And he's right. like, I think you got some anxiety going on. 
that you're, oh. you know, it's like, oh, okay. So that was like nine months ago now for me. Mm-hmm. And I've found meditation since, um, on a small dosage of uh, medication since. And it made me wonder, like you said, I'm undiagnosed. I was like, I wonder, it's like, have I always had this? And I guess to some extent, I've been predisposed to it and probably had periods in my life where I was more anxious than others. But I didn't really notice how bad it was until I got to the other side of it. And now I feel great, you know? And so right. um, I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with too, is this whole idea of stress or anxiety or depression or any of these mental health things. The fact that you have to call it mental health and people say you're mental or, you know, mm-hmm. there's all awareness campaigns around it. It's like people don't want to feel like they're being looked at under a microscope. Um, mm-hmm. At least I know I didn't. I don't want people to look at me like I was broken. You know, like, ooh, what's wrong with you? Um, But I found since I've opened up about it, so many people I know in my life are on medicine for anxiety or, you know, CBD is all the rage now and they're taking that for anxiety and it's just everywhere. So I just feel like I know we're going to get into some of the the ways that you work with people to help help them get through it. I just feel like it starts Mm -hmm. with having this conversation and, and ones like it is here we are. You've got doctor in front of your name. I don't. <laughs> but so you're a very educated person. I'm kind of your average Joe. And we each have our own experiences with stress yeah. or anxiety. And it's okay. We're not less human beings, right? So Right. It's it's part of being human at the end of the day. Like you that's what I'm that's what I'm getting present to while you said that. Like we inherited the warrior brain. And the mm-hmm. warrior brain was anxious. Yep. So, Th- those are the ones who lived. Yeah, so that's okay. You know, the people, one of the things I write in my book is a story of, you know, the people who sat on the rock in the sun and just kind of relaxing <laughs> and were eaten by tigers. You know, they, they didn't lose. <laughs> right. They're like, it'll be fine. We'll have food this winter, I'm sure. <laughs> right? That's, that's funny. That's really, <laughs> right? yeah, that's a great Wait, The mellow ones didn't live. Picture. Yeah. <laughs> So, so what, what have you found, um, in our back and forth before we hit record in email, um, I believe you referenced to them as clients. So what, mm-hmm. I guess I'll start with that is just what kind of doctor are you, Jane? Are you a medical doctor, um, uh, psychologist? What, how are you working with people? I'm a, I'm a PhD doctor okay. and, um, I got my degree in marriage and family therapy. So we kind of look at the world in as a system, um, like our focus is looking at if we're working with individuals, we think about them in the context of their family, their friendships, their environment, because we're not little automatons. And one of the things I love about the systemic perspective is like I can work. I work mostly with individuals. Sometimes I work with families, but it's mostly individuals who come into my office. And what I know is that when an individual changes, you know, all the people that they interact with in, in a systems theory, if one part of the system changes, every other part of the system like has to change because if one person changes their interaction, the other parts of the system can't do same old, same old because it doesn't work anymore. So, you know, I love working with individuals and I know I'm changing the world because everyone they came into contact as they gain greater health, the people they are interacting with will have healthier um, uh, interactions. And it just, you know, it just spreads. Just like, you know, if you smile at somebody, 
they feel better and they're more likely to smile. And it just spreads around the world, which is super helpful for me um, in like this time in the world when so much feels out of control. And, you know, you're like, who's in charge here, people? Um, I get I can get overwhelmed with how much of the world needs to shift. But if I think about shifting my life and the people around me, I, I feel less stressed, actually, because I feel more of a sense of agency of like, I can make the world a better place. Like one interaction at a time, I can make this world better. Right. Yeah, I love that perspective. It's easy to get caught up in how big the world is and how right. you ever affect that change. But you have to bring it back to that first step, which is your immediate world. And you make that a better place. And then the byproduct of it will be the much larger world. So, yeah, it's great. Yeah. And we always have that power. Always, always, always. What techniques have you found that help people overcome stress and anxiousness and and get to that point for themselves? Because it's, right. it's easy for you and I to talk about, right? Because we've each kind of found our own version of it. Mm-hmm. But if someone's in the thick of their fight or flight, freeze, anxiety, stress ridden moment, it can seem like, you know, I can hear their eyes rolling right now, right? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, just mm-hmm. it's that it's easy. for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> You've eaten today, right? Right. Yeah, that's a great. I've got lots of techniques. It's always like, oh, which ones do I share? Because there's so many. When I work with people, I talk about how we can change our sense of stress through our body or through our mind. And as you said, you know, we each found the ways that work for us. And I always like to give lots of tools because the most effective tools are the ones, one, that people will actually do. Like meditation is super awesome. It's like the most powerful thing besides exercise for mental health, but most people won't do it. They won't sit down and it, it, it um, daunts them or it feels too difficult to try to quiet their mind. So I like to give super simple tools that people will try and experience how they work and then they'll actually use them. And I like tools that are very short and that uh, can be top of mind. So the one that I think I'll share first, I originally got from Stephen Covey, you know, seven habits of highly effective people. And I morphed it because I, I, because I change things. I just like to make it my own. So uh, I've uh, developed it into what I call the circles of power and control. And when we're worried about something, when we're feeling anxious or helpless or hopeless or stuck or, you know, stressed, um, I, when I always talk to my clients and with myself, I'm like, okay, so where am I now? Which circle am I in? So the inner circle, the smaller circle is what I've called a circle of power. That is what we have some semblance of power over, some ability to influence, and that's our thoughts and our behaviors. Literally everything else is in the circle of control. This is the circle of it should be this way. They should have done this. Why isn't it this way? Why can't it be this way? What's wrong? What's going on? This is the circle where we desperately want to control things and we can't. So anytime we're in that circle, the circle of control, we feel helpless because we're trying to influence stuff. We actually don't influence or can't influence or we've tried and it didn't work. So when um, like I'll give an example after I uh, took a training where they mentioned this, uh, the, the original model of Stephen Covey's circle of influence and concern. Um, 
I was in the shower and I had a super busy week. I had like, I don't know, like 25 clients and a couple presentations to prepare for and just lots of stuff going on. And I was in the shower, like almost hyperventilating because I was like, oh my God, how am I going to get everything done? I have so much to do and I have no time. It's not, I, how am I going to sleep this week? And I was like, wait a minute, I'm in the shower. Literally, I can do nothing about this right now. I'm washing my hair and I'm stressed out. So I'm like, okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to come to the circle of control. As soon as I get out of the shower and drive off, dry off, I'm going to go right to my calendar. I'm going to write in the spaces where I'm going to work on my presentations, you know, between clients. I'm like, oh, okay. And I felt all better. And then about five seconds later, I'm like, oh, my God, everything. Because this is what our brain does. It cycles through worry. If, if we're not actively engaged, our neocortex is searching for problems and things to fix. So in the shower that day, I, I must have at least 10 times gone, okay, I have a plan. As soon as I'm done with the shower, I'm going to write when I'm going to do it. Okay. Okay. And then I felt my system relax. And then like 10 seconds later, like, yeah, but are you sure? You're gonna I have a plan. So I would just bounce from the circle of, con you know, circle of power, my thoughts and behaviors to the circle of control of like, oh, I, I've got to worry about stuff that I don't have, I, you know, so when we're stressed, we're always in the circle of control. So our power then is to come and say, okay, is there something I can do about this? And if there is, make a plan for when to do it because it's clearly stressing you out. So it's important to take some action. Now, if we tried taking action and it doesn't work, then what we have, you know, influence over is, how am I going to choose to think about this? Am I going to rail about the unfairness? Am I going to rail about how it should be? Or am I going to come to my own peace and go, okay, so here's, here's what I'm living with. Now what? How am I going to choose to be with that? How can I find my sense of peace with what is clearly happening that I actually can't control? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, okay. Because to me, I've found that, that, kind of awareness level is kind of what it is, is being aware of what's going on mm -hmm. in your head. Absolutely. Um, my meditation practice has given me that for sure. I never put it in yes. circles, but um, I learned too. Like I, I, I had the, the, the total wrong viewpoint of meditation when I first started it. Mm -hmm. I thought, okay. What was your viewpoint? I got to sit in a room Indian style with the lights off and just like not think. And I'm like, yeah, good luck. Like how's that? Right. Happen? I know. <laughs> and I just totally dismissed brains. it. Right. Um, but actually I've done a, I've done a podcast episode on here just talking about the app that I use called insight timer. Mm -hmm. And tomorrow when I do my meditation on insight, insight timer, I'll have meditated for 150 days in a row. Awesome. Um, and one of the things I've found is just, it's not necessarily quieting the mind, but it's mm -hmm. being aware of what's going on in the mind. And then you can control how you make use of it instead of letting it control you. Exactly. So, we are yeah. we are less reactive. Yep. Yeah. You could say, hey, I'm listen, right. anxiety or stress, you know, I see you there. You know, mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting you to show up <laughs> show up for our road trip today. You could sit in the back seat, you don't get to drive, you know, and you kind of have mm -hmm. those goofy conversations with yourself. But that's okay. Absolutely. And Actually then, it's super powerful for your brain. I mean, that's yeah. that itself, naming, speaking to yourself, creating the observer are like common techniques to reduce our reactivity to what's going on in our uh, head. And I've also found it's made me much more like empathetic to other people. Like when I see someone yeah. else like 
losing their mind <laughs> and mm-hmm. lashing out because they're stressed and things like that, instead of it triggering me to enter a negative space right back at them, mm-hmm. I can just take a step back and just instead of getting mad, just I don't say feeling sorry for them because that seems condescending, but just compassion. Yeah. Just be like, there's something going on there that I don't know about. So I just need to let exactly. it go. So it's not worth yep. it. Um, yeah. So you're stepping, you step right in the circle of power of like, wow, this isn't mine. Right. Yeah. And I can just let them be them and I'll just be here calming myself. <laughs> yeah. Because there's no use to get all riled up. It doesn't accomplish anything. No, but isn't it fascinating how most of us do that? Like most of us leave ourselves to to try to judge others, to try to control them, to have in our minds how they should be. Like very few of us actually come to ourselves and go, wow, I'm really feeling stressed by how that person is reacting right now. Wow, that really isn't about me. I imagine something's going on in their life because it's one of my firm principles that if we are happy and kind and compassionate to ourselves, we are not unkind to other people. It's only people who are very hurt that lash out and hurt others. I mean, that's just one of my bedrock principles for for compassion. And it, and it really helps me go, wow, they must really be hurting because they're acting pretty awfully right now. Right. Yeah. Or when someone feels such a need to control a specific situation, yes. it's like, wow, they must feel very out of control in some other area of their life that they need this. And so Absolutely. I'm going to let them have this because they need that feeling more than I need to be right in this moment. Right. That's a beautiful way to put it. I find that the more controlling people are of of things outside of their own thoughts and uh, behaviors, um, the more unsafe they feel internally. Sure. Like they just don't have a sense of safety internally, so they have to control their outside environment to try to like put together a sense of you know like building blocks of okay, if it's this way, then I'm safe, then I'm okay, then everything's okay. If it's if all these blocks are this way, I'm good, right? Versus wow, this is a mess. I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm just here being okay as things are kind of like falling apart left and right, but I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, but it's it lets you take stock of what's falling apart and then put a clear plan together to have it stop instead of just running around in circles, <laughs> freaking out while everything's falling down around you. Exactly. Because when we have that awareness and have that perspective, we literally have more of our brain on board. When we're stressed or we're anxious, um, our frontal cortex, the part that, you know, can plan, can say, say this, don't say this, that wouldn't be a good idea. When we're stressed or anxious, that part goes offline. Because when we feel danger, which is what stress is, our amygdala is the only part of our brain that's going to has got control of the situation and it's our fight or flight part because think of it when you are you know if you're being chased by a tiger you don't want to sit there and go gosh they are really fast runner but they're they're bigger than i am so if i go this path then there's that narrow opening so then i get through but the tiger wouldn't and then you know (laughs) you're thinking that and you're dead right yeah you just want to run or fight and so our our brain literally shuts off the the evaluation capacity, the part that says, I want to make a plan here because I'm feeling out of control. And if I take these steps, it's going to super be helpful. Um, when we come to ourselves with that awareness that you're speaking of, then that part of our brain comes on board and we can actually make plans versus just fight or fight. 
fight or fly, flee, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, I get you. <laughs> right, run. <laughs> yeah. So as you're as you're working with people on this, um, I'm sure you get pushback. I'm sure not. Even though people know that they need assistance, they're not. They don't just give themselves over to the process right away. I'm curious what you right. encounter to be the most common objections to helping themselves that people give. Right, like. They can't do it because of X, Y, Z. It's a great question. Um, Well, one, it always comes from their ego. Our ego, and there's some thought that our ego is based in the neocortex, which is the part of our brain that is always searching for what's wrong. It's always their internal thought pattern. And it's usually along the lines of, well, I don't deserve it. Or I'm not good enough. Or, you know, that'd be super great, but I just can't. You know, it's a sense of, it's a lack of agency, a lack of ability to, to, to do what they want. And honestly, the most difficult question I ever ask any of my clients is, well, what do you want? And miles, half the time I get a blank stare and go, well, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that question is revolutionary for many people because, because of that sense of deserving. And it's like, you know, I, 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 yeah, I, I do what other people need. Like there are all these things I need to do, but what I want, what I want is totally in that circle of power. Most people are in the circle of control of like, no, I don't get to want what I want. I, I have to do all these things because I'm, because my responsibilities and for other people and people are expecting it. And da-da. so when you say, well, what do you want? They're like, uh, it's a dangerous, dangerous question for our ego. <laughs> and super powerful when people can go oh, I want this even if even if they can't have it just even wanting something allowing themselves to go oh yeah of course I want that it's a it's a very powerful way to get us right in that circle of power whether we can have it or not it's super it gets us into our our sense of you know our integrity our value system what you know, who we are versus who we're taught we should be, which is where a lot of anxiety comes from when we're doing what we're taught, what we've been taught through society, through our family, through friends, through work, through our own experiences versus what's important to me. What what would be super helpful for me right now? Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense that yeah. I, I had to go through that same sort of line of questioning for myself uh, this past year. Cause it was, yeah, yeah, it's like I woke up one day and I was like, this isn't what I want, you know? And I didn't realize mm-hmm. what I wanted until I woke up one day and looked around and realized it wasn't where I was at. Um, right. and then it's an odd question to work through because you go through all those things you just said, well, you know, it's not just me. I have a son and a wife and a mortgage mm-hmm. and I can't just yep. do this down the other Our responsibilities. thing because what if, <laughs> what if this happens and that happens? And then mm-hmm. you start getting so stressed out about things that haven't even happened yet. Uh, or might not ever happen. And then it takes right. up all your brain power. Um, and then, yeah, I, th- I think so much comes from it. Just, I heard somebody say, and I really wish I remembered where I heard it first, but uh, there's a reason why they call it TV programming. It's because it's literally pro- oh. programming your mind. Um, oh, yes. And I just like, that's stuck in the back of my head since I heard it with a lot of these types of conversations is I feel like we get programmed as we're growing up and and we're programmed to think the way our family thinks or our favorite teacher thinks or our friend group or what we see on TV or the radio or any of that kind of stuff. And we don't spend a lot of time apart from all the sort of just onslaught of 
media and other people's opinions to generate Mm -hmm. our own opinions that we actually could fight for and stand up for and not just end up parroting what we heard someplace else. And well, that yeah. that actually that's you're absolutely right. And our brain is set up for that. Like we learn most of who we should be in the world by the time we're like five or six, like from zero to two around that time. Our brain is mostly in. Forgive me. I'm, I might screw up the order. I think it's zero to two where our brain is in delta waves, which is just we're just experiencing. We're just little sponges for experiencing. We don't we literally can't evaluate. We're just soaking in information. And then from about the ages of two to around five or six, our brains are in theta state. Theta waves are the brain waves we're under, we have when we're under hypnosis. Hmm. So it's basically you're taking in information, but your ego is not on board saying, does that make sense? I don't know about that. It's just like, oh, okay. Oh, that must be true. (laughs) So everything we learn before the age of six we just literally take in as truth. Even if it's crazy, if we experience it, we're like, okay, this is how the world is. This is how I should be. This is how, you know, we just take it as absolute truth. And when we look at some of our beliefs about how we should be in the world, if you say them out loud, it's like, that's wacky. Yeah, it's like, wait a second. But it's programmed in our brain like, no, that's how it is. That's that's truth. That's what we do. There's no choice. You just do that. And it's not till the age of six that our, our, you know, the beta waves come in, which is what we mostly run on in adulthood, which is kind of a problem. But it's like, OK, I got to think. Of, what about this? And no, it can't be that way. Think about No, this has got to be wrong. No. How about this? No. Look, at you know, it's the, it's the critical part of our brain. So you're absolutely right. We learn these things and we don't have a choice. Our brain can't go under the age of six. I don't think I want to believe that. That's stupid. Nope, not going to believe it. Nope, check that one out. Right? Yeah, and then what's kind of, what's great and scary about technology now is it can open up our worlds to varying opinions and force us to question all of our beliefs. But with the way algorithms have gotten involved to service up Mm -hmm. content that's similar to what we like, you know, we have access to everything and we're learning nothing because we're just right. surrounding ourselves with the same stuff and we're not being exposed to any contrarian beliefs because it's it doesn't feel good. So let's just surround ourselves Absolutely. with people that think exactly like us. So it's yep. it's interesting. It it really is interesting. I love just thinking about it and talking about it because it's you don't like you go through all your life and your day to day and you have all these little moments like that that it's mm-hmm. it's kind of wild to sit back and sort of analyze it. Yeah. And that's the beauty of awareness. And that's the power of meditation or or any awareness practice is we get to put on the observer and go, well, let's, let's actually look at that. Let's question that. Let's think about, let's be curious. Let's look at other ways. Might there be other possibilities? Well, yeah. right. Yeah. (laughs) But unless we're aware and, and curious, that doesn't happen naturally in our brains. And you're right. The are all the algorithms and stuff are, are setting us up. So we have less and less opportunity to do that. Like I'm a Rotarian and I love being in Rotary. And one of the reasons I love it is because I'm hanging around people like I'm this therapist, right? And I'm hanging around these business people of, you know, different political persuasions, different economic status, different life experiences, different, very different business backgrounds. And I 
get all sorts of different perspectives. They're, they're bound by their desire to make the world better and to serve the world. But, but there are so many different types of people in there that it expands my mind. Every single week, my mind is expanded by going to this group. So if we can each find ways, you know, reading books or going to meetups or something where we can kind of just broaden what's possible in our worldview, the world would be so much healthier. (laughs) Yeah, totally agree. That's what I get from doing this podcast is every time I hit, you know, turn on the microphone and hit record, it's, I love that word curious you've been saying, because that's what I feel like it is. If everybody could just be a little bit more curious like actually mm-hmm. curious from a good place and not like to better them themselves in like a like a power trip kind of way. Like I'm curious what you know so I can use it against you. It's like, no, I just want to learn for the sake of learning. Yeah. It would just be a better place. And I thought try this as an experiment. I have not been able to been to be curious and judgmental at the same time. It's like there's uh, this switch on our brain. Like literally I'd be interested if any of your um, listeners would try it because I have not been able to be curious and judgmental, like Mm. literally. So if we can foster that curiosity, you know, we can be discerning, but judgmental is basically like, I'm better than you. I want more power. We are different and I'm the good one. Judgmental and, you know, that the negative judgmental is, is always that one up, one down kind of thing. And curious is like, wow, we've got a whole playground here. What are, what's here? There's no judgment. There's just exploration <laughs> and curiosity. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And so all of your, all of your work as a therapist, is that what led you to write your book that recently came out, which I love the title, Everything is Perfect, Just Not Me? <laughs> right? I know. <laughs> is that uh, is that kind of a synthesis of these, these types of conversations you've had with a variety of people? Absolutely. You know, my since I started my practice, I just wanted a full private practice uh, where I didn't have to deal with insurance. And that's all I wanted. And then I got that and I'm like, well, well, uh, now what? I just couldn't like I couldn't go. Yay, I did it. Now I can just do this for the rest of my life. I thought that's what I wanted. But, you know, often when we achieve what we want, our our, our heart is is always like, well, what else is there in the world? Our heart, I think, is naturally curious. Our ego is naturally judgmental. So, but my my heart's like, oh, wait, but but there's wait, there, but I can I can talk to twenty people a week, but I want to do more. I want to reach more people. So I decided to write this book, and it's a super short book, so it's really accessible to people. And then I also started um, running my first online program starting in January because. I, these tools, you know, I've, I've been doing this work for 15 years and they work and they're so simple, but it really, honestly, Miles, it wasn't till like the past five years that I'm like, these are profound. I mean, they work on a very simple, um, elementary level, but they create changes all throughout our psyche and our system. It's like they work on multiple levels, but they're just simple, short tools, so I, I felt this like internal drive of I, I want more people to have these because there's a lot of stress out there and there's a lot of feeling out of control and I've got stuff that works. Yeah. So it's just, you know, the next step of just letting more people know the tools. So, yeah, it's exactly where I read the book. <clears throat> That's awesome. 
Yeah. So if I where, where can we find that? If I just Google the title and your name, it'll pop up on Amazon or something. Yep. It's it's I'm I'm self published on Amazon. Nice. So that's where it is. Okay. Yep. Cool. I'll check it out. Yeah. Just just a funny aspect of that when you type in everything's perfect, the first book that comes up, everything's perfect. If you're a liar, uh, that's, <laughs> that's funny. Not my book. Right. <laughs> that's a good title, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So an idea, an idea that I've been exploring, and I actually have started to write a book about. So mm. give me some research, some market research here. Um, mm-hmm. It's this idea about unseen work. Is what I'm calling it, and I've noticed Ooh. in talking with a bunch of people on podcasts. You know, I'm in the 90s now on episodes. Is that it's easy to focus just on what somebody got on a podcast about, right? We could just focus on, oh, you got your PhD, you got a book out. We could just focus on the highs of the highs and you know the points of success you have. But whenever we drill a little bit deeper, I find some fascinating stories come out of what nobody saw that led you to right. that moment. Right. And so I'm curious, if, as we've talked a little bit about stress and having crazy dreams as a kid and things like that, I'm just curious as you reflect on it from that point of view, what what types of unseen work do you think happened for you that led you to the point where you're at today? Oh my goodness, Miles. Like that's, it's uh, like so many things. I think I've, I think I was born to be a therapist and I've always like, even though my mind was super anxious and it was always looking for how I was a problem, my heart or my gut or my intuition always knew that I was inherently a good person. And, but I didn't feel like a good person. I, I always, like, nothing was ever, ever, ever good enough. That's why I call myself a recovering perfectionist because no matter what I did, you know, I got a PhD, unmedicated ADHD, and I went to really good schools and I blah, 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 blah. I had a private practice and I started right after the 2008 crash, you know, it's like, or right before it. And like, I've done all this stuff that's successful, but it's like, yeah, but look at them or yeah, but I should have done this or yeah, but I should have done it like five years faster or, you know, whatever thing. So I have been on a constant, I'll say practice of finding ways to be more compassionate. Like I've been meditating for probably 25 years now. I read a lot of self-help books. I've done my own therapy. I do spiritual work. I've gone to healers. I've gone to coaches. I've gone to many programs and workshops and and I read Brene Brown every year, um, <laughs> but I'm always looking for more ways to be self-loving and to be self-compassionate. So really, it's it, my life's work is to learn to love myself more. And because I had to learn it versus being blessed with just self-love and self-confidence, because I've had to learn it, I'm conscious of you know tools that can actually work and help people learn it. So does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And yeah. it's bringing the phrase into my mind that it just popped in my mind. I don't know if someone said it before or if this can be a Miles Biggs original, but uh, <laughs> it's it's the idea that you almost have to be selfish in order to be selfless. Like you've Absolutely. got you've got to take care of you first, which is what I heard you you saying. And then once you do that, it's like everything you learned through working on your yourself and then you've, you've been able to use that to help others. But you wouldn't be able to help others unless you'd spent the time on yourself first. Exactly. Like I, I work with one of my specialties is working with uh, families who are living with Alzheimer's. And, you know, it's a big job to be a caregiver for a person with Alzheimer's. And 
I constantly work on self-care. Um, and I, selfish has such a negative connotation in this society. I like to say self-caring instead because that's really what we're doing. And I've never had, like in the beginning, people come in and you're like, I can't possibly take time. I can't possibly, because then I'll, I just need that time. And, and then I, they, what would they do if I'm taking care of myself? And I've never, ever had a caregiver come to me and say, you know, now that I'm taking better care of myself, I'm a sucky caregiver. Like not <laughs> once they right. say I'm more patient, I'm kinder, I don't yell as much, I don't get as mad. That every single time they say that. And as I said earlier on in our conversation, if we are kind to ourselves, we are inherently kind to other people. We never treat other people worse then we treat ourselves inside like never. So the kinder we are to ourselves, the kinder and more compassionate and more generous we are to everybody else in our lives. I love that. So I'm, I'm an evangelist for self care. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I've, I've heard it. It's not selfish. (laughs) Sure. No, I'll take that. Um, I've heard it explained too, like the, it's like the airplane analogy when they say if the oxygen mask jumps, like pops down, you got to put your ears on first before you can help somebody else. It's the same sort of idea. And nobody questions that, right? I mean, everybody's like, of course, that makes total sense. Yeah. I'll have oxygen so I can help others. But it goes back to that deserving. Um, well, I don't, I don't deserve to get the help first. I have to give it to other people. And then if there's time, which there never is, um, then I can focus on myself. But right. nobody questions it when it's life or death. They do question it when it's around worth. Yeah, that's a great point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the title of this show is Relish the Journey, and the subtitle is Life in Three Words. And one of my, I know. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> one, of my, one of my favorite questions to ask everybody is for them to describe their life in three words. And so how would you – what's your three? I mean, thinking about this conversation, we've, we started as being a, a young child with scary dreams and mm-hmm. a born therapist working through that in some respects. Reflecting on it, if you had to pick three words that would sum it all up, what would you choose? Yeah, that is a wonderful question and one that just it helps really people get to the essence, I think, of of, you know, who they are. And my three, I think, would be shame, like just not feeling worthy to perfectionism as my coping mechanism to not feeling worthy to enthusiasm. Hmm. So shame, perfectionism, enthusiasm. I like that. That's a very that's probably the most diverse three that we've had. Right. <laughs> It's a journey, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long journey. <laughs> well, it really is. It's sort of like we got the the full spectrum there between the three, which is which is great. There's, what I find is a lot of people feel like they, they have to be stuck in shame, right? Like the, right? they just – you can't get out of it. But those three, you can, what you're saying. You so absolutely can. It awful. takes practice and it takes persistence because shame is a super powerful uh, controlling mechanism. And it is possible because, you know, if we come into ourselves, we always, always, always have a choice. Even in that choice is simply how we respond. So I'm trying to think how to phrase this without it seeming like a really cliche, open-ended question. But I'm just thinking about shame and mm-hmm. where do people start? I'm just like, I could say it's advice, but if somebody's feeling like they're trapped in that shame spiral, how do they kickstart themselves out of it, do you think? Oh my God, Miles, that's an awesome question. I think there are three things we do for any change and shame is so powerful because it's, we see it as who we are versus 
an action. Like shame is like, well, the first thing I would say is read Brene Brown's Gifts of Imperfection. That's the first (laughs) thing I would say, because she's a shame researcher and she does a beautiful job at explaining to us why shame is so powerful, why it happens and what we can do to move out of it. So the first thing I would say is one reader book, but really it's with any change, it's awareness, as you talked about earlier, when we are aware of what's happening versus it just being, you know, being unconscious behaviors. Like 90 to 95% of our behaviors and thoughts are all unconscious. They just happen. We don't have any observation of them. So our job is to like, increase our awareness of what we're doing that doesn't serve us anymore. So we're aware. And then we take very small actions because shame, it's a wonderful monster because it basically says you've screwed up and you're always going to screw up. And you should, you should change. Okay. So then you start to change, but then you get the message. Well, you should have done this before. Who do you think you are trying to change? You can't do that. You're that's, you're not good enough to do that. Who do you think you are? But then you're like, okay, so I'm not going to change loser. See, you can't even change. Right. It's like, if we watch our ego, it's our ego is a never ending. You can't win message. So we're aware. And then we take tiny little choices like for me, the, the the smaller the choice, the better, because it's it's my way of like um, subverting the ego. Is that we make a small choice, the ego's like, oh, that's that's not that's not a big deal. That's not going to create any change. So we won't we won't worry about that. That's that's not a big deal. So you slip past it. If you do enough of those miles, you start to literally change your neural pathways in your brain, and then you start to make these more positive changes and because your neural pathways have changed your ego comes along and goes oh well now it's now it's okay like when people want to start um a meditation practice i like you had that same thing i have to sit in a super uncomfortable posture for 30 minutes twice a day and you know i was in grad school so there was no way that was going to happen so i was talking to a friend and she's like well i started doing five minutes a day i'm like oh i can do i can do five minutes a day because and then I sat and I didn't try to quiet my mind. I just sat basically. I listened to calming music right. and I just sat there and I just watched my mind. And what I found is like within a week, I always I'm a big fan of setting a timer for everything. But so I set a timer for five minutes and within a week I was like setting it for five more minutes. And then literally I just felt so much better when I got up. Not my mind wasn't quiet. I'm ADHD and high anxiety, but I because I'd given myself five minutes of sitting, it just kind of, it kind of added up. And literally miles within a month, I was doing half an hour every single day. And that's been for over 25 years. Wow. That's awesome. But it was because it was just five minutes. That's no big deal. That's, that's not a problem. That's not going to change anything, but it totally changed things. Yeah. So, so awareness and small actions and, um, whenever possible, Having that self-compassion, and Tara Brock is a wonderful self-compassion person. And one of her favorite thing, one of her my favorite tips she gives is, you know, put your hand on your heart and go, oh, I'm hurting. Like anytime we have pain, hand on our heart, oh, ouch, I'm hurting. And that automatically gives us the option for self-compassion. Hmm. Yeah, because if we saw, if we heard or saw anyone else doing that, we'd, exactly. we'd immediately try to make them feel better. Exactly. 
Yeah, I remember not too long ago, I was going through a big period of beating myself up. And one of my friends said to me, um, be, be kind to my friend, Jane. And it was like, oh, wow. <laughs> and it just kind of shook me out of my self-punishment and went, yeah, that's a choice too. That's a choice I would offer anybody else. So it's a choice I can offer to myself. And it, it totally worked. It just kind of shook me out of my like trance of unworthiness. Like, be kind, be kind to my friend, Jane. And I think anytime we put our hand on our heart, it's super helpful. Yeah. I love that idea. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And it works. It's super simple and super profound. Well, I want to thank you for being kind to me and giving me an hour of your time here this evening for this Miles, interview. Thank you so much. I've been listening to your podcast and I just, I love the curiosity uh, and the whole different variety of speakers you have or or people you have on your podcast. And so I want to thank you for, you know, adding curiosity into the world and allowing me to be part of, you know, feeding people's curiosity. Thank you. Oh, that means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. It's my honor. All right, that's a wrap for this week's episode of Relish the Journey. A very special thank you to Dr. Jane Tornator for being our guest this week. As you can tell, I really loved this conversation and is right up my my alley of curiosity and hopefully you connected with it as well. If you want to learn more about what Jane is up to, in the show notes, we're linking to where you can buy her book, check out her website, follow her on social media, and join this conversation surrounding self-love and taking care of yourself so that you can take care of the world and all those you love in it. So until next time, everyone, cheers.